Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Hey guys, episode 40 of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast, and this week it's just Locke and I, and we're doing a mailbag episode. We're going to be covering a lot of questions that aren't necessarily deemed uh, big enough or large enough to have an entire episode for them. So we're going to be doing a couple of quick um, kind of top line answers for a lot of questions that y'all submitted to us through DMs and PMs and comments on Instagram and Facebook. And um, we actually get a lot of emails about this stuff as well. We get a lot of people that just out of the blue have a certain question that that they want answered and, um, you know, they don't want to post it out to the world. So they come to us or or Locke and I specifically, which we, we love that stuff because number one, it means that we're able to help somebody potentially, and number two it means that people listen to our podcast. <laughs> They're listening to us, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I will say, I looked at the metrics this morning, and I was kind of, I was kind of surprised. We've had um, a little over forty three thousand downloads so far, which um, I think is pretty cool because we started this with absolutely zero expectation, um, and it is. Uh, intended to just be another way to get information out there that Facebook can't uh, limit my reach on. So we chose podcasts, but um, yep. it's uh it's been a great, um, a great journey. And uh, we enjoy doing these for y'all every week. And we appreciate everybody that listens because number one, we're just like y'all. Like I'm not a pro hunter. I don't lock. Do you get paid to hunt? Mm, not really. No. Yeah. I don't. Kind of, but um well it's a little different you, well not to hunt not to hunt for you, the media stuff you, you, but you, you, but your point is well taken. you get paid to to put productions together and film 
people hunting and create content, but like you're not paid to go out and shoot animals per se. So I'm certainly not. Um, but like we've said in the past, um, we're just like y'all. I'm a regular Joe Blow deer hunter. Honestly, I haven't even been doing it this long. I'm 33. I've been doing this for, I've been bow hunting. I started when I was 25. I started bow hunting when I was 25 years old. Um, and I did not deer hunt before that. I, I, you know, to, to stop from going off on a long tangent, I, I didn't have any opportunities as a child to hunt. Um, with my grandfather passing away and I never really had a father figure. I mean that as a fact, not as like a woe am I thing. But I got into my hunting and fishing career um, at age 21 while I was in college in New Orleans. And um, so anybody listening now that's ever been woken up by their parents or to go on a duck hunt or a deer hunt, I've never experienced that. So this this is proof of my ability to just become totally enamored in a hobby <laughs> in a short yeah. period of time because that's what I've done and um what I what I realized early on years and years ago is that other people struggle the same way I did and other people struggle the same way that you did lock and everybody that's listening none of us started out really freaking good at this in fact well, I, I would say none of us think, are really good at it well I think one of the things that makes podcast and and internet chatter and conversation about hunting so intriguing is that if we're all honest with ourselves we recognize that there you know as we answer these questions there really isn't a black and white answer to most of the things that we're talking about most of the things that we find ourselves engaged with other hunters it's just you know opinions mixed with some uh experiences that you know, built those opinions. Yeah. And I think as we go through this episode and we talk, you'll find that then, you know, like you said, we're not pro hunters. Um, we're just giving our opinion on these questions and it's, you know, what one man says is, is, is hardly ever on any topic. Can there not be a detractor or somebody that says, well, I experienced the exact opposite of what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an exception to every rule, and I think in hunting, in in bow hunting especially, um, it's it's always different. Every day is different. Every experience has its own theme, and because of that, it's it well, it makes our job a little bit easier because there's always a lot to talk about. And um, I think that's what makes this so interesting to people, interesting and fun for us to talk about, and interesting to people to listen to us, regardless of what our you know uh, qualification or or whatever is it's that you know everybody can can share an experience and opinion and none is wrong and and right it's not a wrong and right thing yeah you know and that's what deer hunting is that's why we're so addicted to it because it never it's always changing it's it's always molding and becoming something new to us with different experiences and there's always something to learn me, i guess is a good way to tell cap you that. So, let me tell you something do you know do you know one thing that i like more than bow hunting is watching other people be successful. Uh, yeah. That could be in their career. That could be in their private life. That could be in the woods. And I I grew up with uh, a, a, a massive amount of support, family and friends, and a fantastic mother. And, I, I mean, my wife is a saint for dealing with me every day. I'm a... Um, she is oh, t- 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 terrible person <laughs> to live with, but, um, 
I grew up with people that always wanted the best for me. And I'm very fortunate for that. And I, I'm thankful for that every day. But that doesn't mean that anything was handed to me. And it doesn't mean that I haven't learned some hard lessons. And I think we can all agree that bow hunting is one big, long, continuous, year after year, hard lesson learned. But we always fall a little bit forward. And, 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 and actually, that reminds me of one of my absolute favorite football players at LSU. I'm not a big football guy. was Jacob Hester. Jacob Hester was known for always falling forward. You could not get him to lose an inch. If he was if he got stopped on the line, he always fell one inch forward. Always one inch forward. And so when it comes to bow hunting, it's the same thing. None of us are great at this, but through this collective effort of Louisiana Bow Hunter and this community that that we've built and grown and and tried to uh, uh, drive people into our sport then we can all kind of fall forward together and we'll eventually be yep. in, in 10 downs. We'll be a lot further down the field than, yep. than we, we are today. And so a, that's the premise of this whole thing in Louisiana. A good Bowhunter. way to put it. Yeah. This is the premise of Louisiana bow hunter in its entirety is, you know, it's not about me. This is not about Locke. And, um, if anybody knows me personally, and in, in I can think of about eight people off the top of my head that I had a conversation with before we started this podcast last year was that Louisiana Bowhunter is a brand about bowhunters in Louisiana. It's about you. It's about the people that do this on public land, on private land, that choose to hunt a way that is knowingly more difficult than other methods of take. And because of that, this is not about me. This is not about one person. I'm not the central figure of bow hunting of Louisiana bow hunter. Locke is not the central figure of Louisiana bow hunter. But when we created the podcast, it kind of made me a real person. And I I will finally go on the air and say that that is number one, never the intention, and number two, it's not my favorite thing. And if you want proof of that, go back and listen to the first 27 episodes of season one, and my name was not mentioned one single time after I said it in the first two minutes and introduced myself. And like you said, Locke, this isn't about like, this has never, ever been about what do we know? I, I know more than you. Hell, I learned something every single hunt on my last hunt yesterday. I learned I should bring a spare tie rod in for my four wheeler. Um, and, <laughs> and I also learned that three zip ties in a 15 inch length of paracord will get you back to the truck. But I never created this podcast. And then Locke, of course you joined season two with me because you were on so many episodes. I couldn't turn you down, uh, to, mm -hmm. to be the, the co-host you're on, I want to say 26 or 27 episodes last year. Um, we, for punishment. we created this to help other people and, you know, it's interesting to me. There's been some people that um, don't listen, don't follow that heavily, um, and have have you could say accusatory remarks of what this is about because in their own mind, it's something that it's not. And I'm here to set the record straight. This brand, this company, is all about you. It's all about the shared struggles that I have, that Locke has, that we all have, and we can all collectively get better together. And so it's been a very, very long time since I've come out and said that, possibly since episode one. Um, but I feel like today on this episode, that needs to be said because um, we only do this every week 
so that y'all can learn. And we don't do it for any other reason than that. And and the other thing I got to admit is like, we know it's appreciated, at least by the four of y'all that have messaged us saying thank you. You know, like that's maybe five. And we get emails, we get text messages, we get phone calls, we get PMs from people that, that want to engage and like, hey man, I like this episode. And, and hell, I even got a lot of messages like, hey, Kyler, you talk too, too much, which I'm doing right now. Shut the hell up. Let your guests talk. <laughs> and 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 I've also changed that. So I'm very um, adaptive to change. I also appreciate feedback. But this episode is going to be covering a lot of topics that we don't necessarily either we've covered them a little bit we need to touch up on them or they aren't um uh, you could say large enough to take up an hour conversation with the guest so before we get into this week's episode i want to give a big shout out to this week's sponsor relentless boats out of thibodeau louisiana one of louisiana's premier custom boat builders any way any configuration any size any hull thickness any motor type that you want you can have built custom to your specs, built in gun boxes, built in center consoles, drop decks, hunt decks, you name it, pointed valve, 316 bottom. If you want to get deep in the woods on a boat that not only looks good, but is never going to break, check out RelentlessBoatsLA.com. I think you'll be really impressed by the quality and the design that they can put out and build you a fantastic boat for a great price. So that's RelentlessBoatsLA.com. Y'all be sure to check them out in Thibodeau. All right, so... We're going to go over five questions today, and it's just Locke and I. Disclaimer, none of us are professionals. None of us have hunted every inch of Louisiana, so we might have differing opinions from yours. Um, but uh, actually, sorry. No, I'm sorry. It's six questions that we picked. Number one is walking to the stand. Number two, scouting uh, on public land. Um, number three, small track tactics, part two. Number four is mature buck public land, and we're gonna we're gonna do, redo all these questions when we when we start talking about each one. Um, number five is morning versus evening hunts, and number six is weather and deer movements. Now, the way I just read those, they aren't not worded as questions, but um, anyway, uh, we're gonna dive into it. Um, number one from Blake. Number one from Blake. Bordenaro, he asked a question on walking to the stand. Does the method in which you walk to your stand matter? Do you do you walk and stop every few feet? Do you try and um, and uh, sound like a quadruped with a stick? Have you heard of that, Locke? You know what I'm talking about? A quadruped with a stick? Yeah. Well, sorry. You're trying to sound like a quadruped using a oh. stick. Um, do, do you know what I mean by that? I, I can imagine. I don't think I've ever heard it, but I can imagine what you're trying to say. Okay. Yeah, it's a poorly phrased question. A poorly phrased sentence that I'm putting <laughs> together, paraphrasing this guy. Um, but essentially, Blake asks, does it matter how you walk to your stand? Um, and um, what he means by walking with a stick is you take two steps and then you throw, not throw, but you, you take a walk, walking stick and you um, make it sound like a third footprint or footstep yeah. in front of you to where it literally makes you sound like you are a deer walking through the woods. Um, there's YouTube videos on this. There's um, stuff on Facebook about it. And if you listen to it, it sounds like a deer walking. Um, and uh, it sounds like a four-legged animal versus a three-legged animal. And um, 
anyway, to me, I'll, I'll go first on this one. Number one, uh, I don't really think it matters. Um, I don't care if the leaves are wet. I don't care if the leaves are dry. I don't care if it's in the dark. I don't care if it's 2.30 in the afternoon and walk, you're walking in the stand. Number one, um, when I say it doesn't matter, you want to try and be as quiet as possible. I don't even think I have to say that. Uh, avoid sticks. Avoid um, large breaks, uh, like, like large, loud noises, if you will. But I've never really thought that much about sounding like a deer i don't i think that's getting almost silly yeah um and uh and then the reason why is because we've talked about this kind of segues a little bit into the whole headlamp versus walking loudly thing okay where Mm -hmm. if you have two situations where you have a headlamp but you walk quieter or you are walking in the dark without a headlamp and you walk louder which one has a greater effect my uh, my personal opinion is that I think a headlamp is 10 times more damaging to your hunting area than the sound of walking is. Um, and if you want to test that theory, hunt with a friend that's coming to meet you through the woods at night. Like, at, like let's say you shoot a deer and he's walking, he's hunting 500 yards from you. Call him, ask him to come towards you, and then turn off all your lights as he's on his way. And see how far away you can see him through the woods. It's sometimes hundreds of yards. I'm well, not talking about a also field. consider how close he has to get before you can bingo clearly discern that it's him bingo. and not some other sound in the woods. Absolutely. And so I'll play devil's advocate and say, well, Locke, deer can hear better than humans. What about that? Okay. So my response to that would be, I'd. I personally do not think that there's a deer in Louisiana or North America for that fact that lays in its bed or stands at attention when it hears something and determines whether or not that sound is coming from two feet, three feet, or four feet. Or I don't think deer have that cognitive ability. Correct. So, so uh, you know, to your point with the light and the sound, I think that Obviously, a deer is a prey animal, and a deer is on alert a lot, probably all the time. And I think sounds catch their attention, and I think things that sound natural, like the crunching of leaves, the breaking of sticks, while it might get their attention, it is something that they hear in different ways from different things all the time, 24 hours a day, no matter what they're doing, they hear things moving through the woods. So I believe that you're concern in walking to and from the stand should be more along the lines of the senses that a deer are going to perceive um and and actually analyze which is scent and sight Mm -hmm. and things that you are going to be undeniably distinguishable with in other words if you're walking through the woods and a deer can't see you and they can't smell you, they don't know what they who you are, and a deer does not have the ability to determine if you sound like a four-legged creature or a two-legged creature. I don't believe that deer have that kind of cognitive thought. However, if you're walking through the woods and a deer smells you, it knows exactly what you are, and I think it goes without saying, if it sees you, it knows exactly what you are. Correct. So those those are the things that I think that, that – uh, kind of make the most sense to me it's a very logical thing and um i'll go into it from this perspective if i'm walking in the woods at night and and the senses are against me so my number one 
my number one defense in terms of using my senses um, against a deer would obviously be what? If I can see him before he sees me, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to outsmell him, and I'm not going to outhear him. But I might be able to sneak up to a spot where I have an advantageous view and I see the deer before the deer sees me or knows that I'm there. If I'm walking at night with or without a light, that's not going to happen, right? So, you know, I kind of just try to get to a place where I'm hunting quietly. I'm in the stand or whatever the case may be. I'm trying to get where I'm going and get there and let the wood settle back down because there's not a whole lot I can do otherwise. Yep. You know, I can turn my light off. I can try to walk quietly, but my 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 thought process behind approaching an area or walking to a stand in the dark is get there and get quiet, because everything that happens between A and B, I you know, it's not a whole lot I can do. It just kind of it, it's left to be what it is. I, mean, I just do the best I can. Now in the in the, in the daylight, if I'm going to a stand during the day. I take my time, not because I necessarily am really trying to be that much more quiet than any other time, just because if I have the advantage of being able to go slower and look where I might, you know, I I mean, I think all of us have probably had the situation where you've been walking to a stand and you've come around a corner or you've topped a hill or something and you saw a deer feeding that didn't know you were there. Well, you maybe you prevented yourself from, from spooking that deer and maybe that helps you on the rest of your hunt. You know, so to me, it's just a very logical thing. If I can see, then I'm going to take my time. If I can't see, I'm going to try to get to a place where I, I can get as invisible as possible as quick as possible. Now, that doesn't mean run through the woods, but it just means, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of strategy to it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with, you could say, um, the um, realm of impact uh from what you're doing and when you're walking you're making noise like you said uh you you pretty much took the words out of my mouth compare how far off you can see that light coming compared to how close he has to be for you to hear him walking to you and so um we've talked about this briefly last season um, which is when you're walking through the woods with a buddy if you get 50 yards apart from each other even in dry leaves you absolutely can hear it was half as loud 75 yards is almost you can't even hear him at all and granted this is a human being's hearing which is far less than a deer right a deer's capabilities but right. still the it's the, the the decibels that we're putting off doesn't change regardless of who's hearing them right and so mm-hmm. if if you're a deer you're using sound as a verifier and if you'll notice very frequently, very infrequently, will a deer use only hearing as his source of like reason to flee. They're always look using it as a reason to try and f- pinpoint something's happening in a direction and either try to smell it or see it. And like you said, you can do both of those things. You can be seen and be smelled from way further away than you can be heard. And so I think in conclusion, we agree, Locke, walking to the stand does not matter. Get there as fast as you can, as quietly as you can, and be quiet. Um, I, this is actually giving me like deja vu. On I think it was years ago on like archery talk. There was a topic that said it's the like the polar opposite of this. What if you run to your stand? Mm. Look, I had a guy tell me in college. I was hunting a WMA in Mississippi while I was in college, and uh, you know I know the guy. I grew up with him, but you know one of those you know, tailgate conversations around the hunt. 
and this topic or something like this comes up and this guy actually tells me that one of the things he does is he runs in short spurts Mm -hmm. in and out to sound like a squirrel. (laughs) The world's biggest squirrel. Yeah. He wants to sound like a squirrel. That's like, you know, running, you know how a squirrel sounds. It hits the ground and it goes as quickly as it can to the next tree to get back up off the ground. Being in a stand on public land and you see a guy sprinting 20 yards at a time. Can you imagine? Oh my God. I would, I would have to climb down because I would be laughing so hysterically, you know? Well, I, I, I think that, and I don't, I hope that this doesn't come across specifically to the guy who, who asked the question. But to anybody that has this question, I don't. I really don't mean this, um, in in a in an insulting way at all. But I think this is one of those questions that is one hundred percent falls in the category of we're overthinking it, very much overthinking it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't think you're gonna find yourself. I guess to 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 give a, a a more, I guess a better answer to that. I don't believe, and this is my opinion, maybe you found success and failure in this yourself and you have your ideas like the guy who runs like a squirrel, but I don't personally believe you're going to find yourself um, having a, a notable amount of success or failure based on how you walk to the stand. I just, I think that if you want to find something in this that is that is really, really beneficial to your hunting and, and make you a better hunter – just pay less attention to the speed and the sound of your walking and pay more attention to the way that you approach based off of the day that you're hunting, the wind direction, the weather, the anticipated pattern of deer movement, you know, those kind of things, you know, try not to encounter a deer. Don't worry about how you sound and just try to have alternate routes to your area that you're hunting. So that, um, if, if I'll give an example, if you're hunting a morning spot and you're in, you're hunting, uh, you know, where you expect the deer were probably up feeding at night and you're hunting deer that are going to be traveling back or feeding back to a bedding area, you know, obviously don't go close to where you expected them to be feeding. And then you won't have to worry about them hearing you, smelling you or seeing you. Um, and then conversely, if it's a, you know, a dark night and there's a weather change and you don't, you're expecting to get to where you're going and get set up and get quiet because you think the deer are going to get up and move after daylight, go ahead and get there. Because if, if you're right, if you've made these assumptions correct, which I think are, are, are better assumptions to be making, if you want to be a better hunter, those are the kind of things you need to be worried about. And if you're right, the deer are not going to be where you're walking anyway. They're going to be bedded up somewhere. So don't walk through the bedding area. Get there, get still, get quiet, and let in you know be in that position for when they do what you're expecting them to do. Mm-hmm. I think those are the kind of considerations you should make as it pertains to uh, getting to your stand and, and not really worried about you know how fast you walk or, or what that sounds like. Yeah, it's it comes from a place of, of self consciousness, right? Um, Mm-hmm. It's it's loud to us when our our ears are six feet away from our feet, but it's not loud when you get fifty feet away from you. And honestly, if you're walking up on something within fifty feet, it knows you're there anyway. Doesn't matter how quietly yeah. you walk up yeah. on something within fifty feet, it knows where you that's are. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. There's there's a there's a line of delineation there where what are we talking about? I mean, if you get that close, it doesn't matter how you sound. Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't even matter what way the wind's blowing. I mean, you're going to get detected one way or the other if you're getting that close anyway. So back to my original point, you know, focus your attention on how can I get in there 
and get to my spot undetected yep. rather than how can I slip past something, Absolutely. you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So to conclude, you're trying to beat a deer's eyes, ears, and nose. And in, if you had to um, rank those things in level of importance, I would put sound ears last compared to the other two. <laughs> I agree. One one other comment to make on that that I think would be kind of a interesting point to 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 opine on. What are your thoughts about you know uh, your chances uh, if you bump a deer walking in, and and how do you approach that? Yeah, it, the inevitability that hey I'm I've walked up on a deer, it's fixing to run off, or I'm I've been surprised because all of a sudden this deer just bolted. You know, how does that make you feel, and what are your thoughts about your experiences of when that happened? I mean, what is it, how does that make you feel? Um, yes, yeah, so if so, if you can see the deer running away, the way it runs away actually get, is a good indicator of how much damage you did, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're bl- if they're running away, blowing tails up, and and like five of them are hauling butt, and they got, you could say, a good look at you on your way in, or they were directly down. I, honestly, I don't, hmm, let me think about this. I can't think of a time that I've ever been blown at and only seen. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, the times I've been blown at is when I've been smelled first, or I didn't know, like I didn't know a deer was in the area, and that's how they got me, right? It was, they smelled me. So when you bump deer by walking in, um, I think that spot is extremely recoverable very quickly. I think they'll come right back to it sometimes within the same hunt. Deer are um, <laughs> curious to a fault. Um, there's a lot yeah. of deer killed on this planet that have been uh, had a hole put in them because they didn't know to stay away after the first time. And uh-huh. um, and so my thought is on that. On to answer your question, like, well, how, do, how does it make me feel? If 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 I push a deer out that is downwind to me that's blowing away that's running away blowing and has his tail up and is like trying to enter another parish probably not going to see that do you there but something else to keep in mind this sounds really obvious but i almost relate this to like when people say like bass are hitting a certain color lure one bass's decision to hit a white spinnerbait has no effect on another bass's decision to hit the same color spinnerbait Okay, they're not interconnected. So just because you blow one deer out doesn't mean that the whole herd got a red alert and sirens going off in their lair and they're and they're all gone. So if you scare one deer out, you can almost use that as confirmation. Like there's a deer in the area, which means there's probably other deer here. And and so blowing one deer out does not mean you blew your hunt. It just doesn't. Well, I, I think I think the one thing that I would say about my leading question is pay attention to the situation. And, 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 and what I mean is if you bump a deer over a food plot or a bait pile, even a feed tree, you know, a very active feed tree, I think bumping a deer off of a food source has a different effect than just simply intersecting with a deer that's traveling or even bumping a deer out of a bed. Um, I think deer are more naturally cautious when they approach any kind of food, whether it's natural or completely Mm man-made. And I think if you bump a deer off a food source, they're less likely to return to that in the immediate, you know, while you're there hunting. That's a great point. 
Yeah, never um, haven't thought about that. I, that that's kind of what I think. I think if uh, if you bump a deer out of a bed, and it's kind of a quick thing where you didn't know the deer was there, and it really didn't know you were there until the last minute. I I don't think that that situation to a deer is really all that much different than when they're laying in a bed and a coyote comes strolling through and they're like, crap, I better get up and get out of here. It's just confirmation to them that where they bedded is a place where they can sense danger before it gets to them and they just get up and get out of there and go on about their day. Yep. And that might mean them making their way back around you or or, or in the worst case, to your other point, it, 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 it likely has little effect over other deer in the area because this is something they deal with every day and to the to the point about a deer analyzing you know danger i mean how much can a deer determine you're just a danger you're not that much you're not really that much different than other predators that they encounter that run them out of certain areas uh the frequency of it may have you know more determining factor but again i think that um if you if you first of all if you approach a food source downwind that's that's kind of dumb on your part to begin with but if you do and and a deer smells you and it sees you and it runs off and it makes a big scene i, I think that that's probably a, a kind of a factor in alerting the other deer and that and that food source might be dead for a while mm-hmm. you know but a while might only be 24 hours but it's probably going to be dead you're probably not going to get up in the stand and then see a deer come right back and feed there unless you're hunting in an extremely low pressure area where they're used to traffic and they just run off and come back um but just i'm I'm speaking statistically in in general um i think that's that's kind of the thing i've learned i know when i was younger obviously when i was a kid and, and you know i was just really really hyped up all the time about seeing a deer and killing a deer you know i just felt like the world was ending if if i if i scared off any deer whether it was walking in or if a deer detected me while i was in the stand I'm like crap my hunt's over you know this is it but i i think experience has kind of taught me that a lot more of what you said that you know that it, it ain't the best thing it's not the best thing for a deer to to detect you and for a deer to 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 make a scene i mean that is obviously especially for a mature buck that might be in the area it probably pays more attention to that than than a younger dumber deer less experienced deer but it's not the end of the world you know those deer live there all the time they're constantly on alert to everything you included and um you know you just kind of got to take it in stride and like you said hopefully it's not in the dark and it and you can kind of see it and analyze it for more of what it is and whether that deer is just making the smart decision just get out of there or whether that deer is really 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 spooked yeah absolutely well, let's move on to question number two, which is a um, question from Jesse Diaz. Uh, and Jesse's asking, um, how do you pick spots on public land? Um, what makes you want to hunt uh, one spot over another, essentially one tree versus another? Um, he throws out a couple of questions, um, you know, hunting bottoms, hunting palmettos, hunting ridges, hunting water sources, hunting food sources. How do you pick? Um, so we've done a good amount of um, episodes on not, I don't want to say specifically scouting public land, but there's a lot of information in the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast records that um, contain information on where to hunt, how to hunt. If you want a really good recent one, listen to Ken and Wilson's um, from season two. David Sims is a great one, um, uh, which is hunting in hip boots is a really great one. Um, hunting in water. Uh, another one is um, Jade uh, Lambert's, uh, he does one with me on internet scouting last year where we talk about how to find places, um, before you ever go there, how to pinpoint spots to essentially 
hone in on once you finally get to the property. But um, my answer, since this is such a large question, my answer isn't going to be that detailed on, okay, if you find this, hunt it like that, right? I would say you need to have a plan. You need to have a reason, a strategy for the the immediate spot that you have chosen to hunt. And so if you think about the weapons that we're hunting with, we have a maximum, I would say, let's just be a little reserved here. Let's say a maximum effective range of 50 yards. You shoot 50 mm-hmm. yards around you and you're hunting a 100 yard circle piece of property. That's what you're hunting. I don't care if you're on 40,000 acres or if you're on 5,000 acres or you're on 500 acres. You are only hunting 100 acres. I mean, sorry, 100 yards. 100 yards, 100 yards at a time. Okay? And so that 100 yards is your world. And the decisions you make within that 100 yards has a big effect on whether or not you're going to be successful, whether or not you're going to see something, whether or not you're going to get a shot on something, whether or not you're on the right side of where that something is going to walk out. And so my answer when it comes to scouting is I can't speak for what you're seeing in the woods. For example, I don't hunt piney woods. I couldn't talk for three seconds about hunting piney woods. I, I, that might as well be Swahili to me. I don't know how to do it. Um, I also don't necessarily care to learn. And, I would say that your hunting situation, what you're finding on public land, I'm not going to tell you what to look for because we've covered that, but you need to have reasons for why you've chosen it. Sometimes that reason is this looks like a decent spot. I only have two hours to hunt after work. Hey, climb up in any tree you can and hopefully you, uh, you know, the deer gods are with you and you've got a deer that walks within range, you can kill it. But if you're going to hunt three Saturdays a month on public land, I would suggest if you want a ROI on your time, have a reason why you're hunting there. So try and hunt. I, I, my favorite things to hunt are combinations of, um, of features, meaning I like to hunt. I love to hunt beside water, love to hunt to, beside something that's going to push a deer a certain way. Um, I've killed a number of deer hunting on the outside of a fallen tree that forces a funnel of a natural trail for a deer, meaning it limits the amount of directions that a deer can come from. If it comes from my left, it has to go through this 25-yard funnel. It can't go any direction around my tree, and I'm going to position myself to take advantage of that funnel. So a funnel isn't always like a you know, like they have, it's not like hunting the hills where you can only go up the hill this one way. A funnel means it's going to have an impact on how the deer moves somewhat a funnel or fallen tree up against um, a levee is even better funnel even further Um, a thicket with a border of water most likely a deer is going to come through the thicket or out of the thicket before it goes across the 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 um the bayou or the the river or the creek whatever you're hunting up against so if you can hunt multiple things at once Meaning if you have a field edge that comes into some hard oak bottoms that's also pin oaks that's surrounded by water on one side, that's the combination of three things that's going to provide cover, it's going to be a funnel, and it's going to provide a pretty good travel route most likely for deer to take depending on where they want to go or where they're coming from. So like 
when I find a spot on public land, I typically do not hunt it unless I can put two different types of terrain together. That's my personal rule. If I can put three together, even better. So if there's a feed tree next to a water source, and I know reasonably that a deer is not going to come from the water, Okay, like some of y'all are saying, well, deer cross creeks or deer swim ponds or whatever. I've never seen a deer swim across a lake that it could walk around. Okay, it is it is it's going to do it if it's fleeing, if it's, it's going to do it if it's being pushed, and it's going to do it if it's the only way across the bayou that's different. But most likely, I would say 99% of the time, that deer is not going to swim to that oak tree. It's going to walk there from some direction. So you can say, okay, water, I can knock out a whole 180 degrees of this spot that that's not where the deer is going to come from so it's discounting it's dismissing a lot of your features of land that you're looking for it's saying this is where a deer is most likely not going to come from which means i've just doubled the odds that it probably will come from the opposite way and so when you can combine features in your scouting and your hunting that's your best bet um it's a hard question to answer because not all public land is the same. Not all terrains the same. Not all feed trees are the same. It's it's to try and answer that in depth, you know, speci- with specifics. We'll yeah. be here, here all night. So that's why I'm giving you a general answer. Try and string a couple of um, terrain characteristics together, and you will put yourself in a better position to see a deer and hopefully kill one. So I will say, disclaiming up front. And it's been talked about on this podcast a lot. I represent more of the private land hunter, but that hasn't been my entire history. I I grew up hunting a lot of public land, and before I became, um, I guess, an adult with the means to finance private land access and you know, however you want to put that. Uh, in college, I hunted a lot of public land, and uh, growing up in, where I did, there was a lot of public access. So, um. I guess I'll go in this direction, and what I'm going to try to do here is is kind of paint a picture for, again, similar to to what you said in that I'm not, I can't tell you what to look for specifically, but more or less the way to approach it and and the the mentality to have. So my thought process is on most public land, um, you know, what is the primary difference between the property down the road from my house that I spend lots of time on weekly, I really know what's going on. I got a lot of cameras. I have complete autonomy over what happens there and public land. Well, the obvious difference is I don't know what's going on on public land. All I know is what's going on in my bubble while I'm there. Right. And I think that because of that, there's a huge unknown that you have to take out of the equation. I can make a decision on my private property as to where to go hunt based off of things that I have control over that I don't have when I go on public land. All I know is what's happening now. So this might sound very obvious, but instead of finding a spot that I think looks good or that I think somebody said look for this specific feature, I am 100% in a concentrated effort to find the freshest deer sign I can the most fresh deer sign I can. And then I'm playing the odds that this is going to be, you know, a frequent spot where there is a deer that I'm hunting. In other words, it may end up being two yearlings that are 
feeding there every day, but it might actually be a, a buck that I'm after or a mature doe that I'm after. I don't know, but I'm, I don't know what's going on on this place every day. I only know what's going on right now. And it's obvious that there are deer in this area right now. They might get pushed out of here by the weekend warriors or the next guy that comes along on the very next day. But right now they're, they're using this area a lot. So I'm going to hunt this. I'm not going to go hunt that over there because so-and-so told me to look for that feature. And that's got that feature. I'm going to hunt this because this is fresh and this is all I can control. So I'm controlling the controllable. That's one thing that I have, that I did a lot and I found success with it. Um, I spent a lot of time hunting public land over the years where I did a lot of what you're talking about. And I had success because I found the right spots to be in, but I had to put in a lot of time to make that actually work for me. I had more success in hunting fresher sign. Sometimes in places that I, you know, maybe to the eye or to the human emotion, I thought, well, I don't, I mean, I'd really rather be over there in that hardwood bottom, but you know, this is where I need to be. Um, this, the, the sign says I need to be here. The other thing that I did, and maybe this contradicts my, my first a little bit, but we talked about this in a previous episode. Um, it also correlates to the idea that I don't have the intelligence, the ability to gather intelligence on the public ground the way I do on private ground. So I used observation sets a whole lot more. Um, I don't, you know, I do observation sets on private ground on limited capacity because I have a lot of other ways to gather that intelligence. I'll do it early in the season, maybe to just kind of get a gauge on what's going on. But once I've done it a time or two, I know what's up yeah. and I have a lot of other ways and a lot of autonomy to gather that information on public land. I don't really have that. So, uh, you know, it kind of goes back to that conversation we had on a previous podcast. Instead of blowing up in there, um, I would you know, sit back if I had, if I was, if the, if the terrain was advantageous for this, that's not always the case, but if it is, then, you know, instead of going across that terrain feature and getting over in there and maybe making a mistake because I don't know what's going on and I have no previous knowledge, I'm going to sit back and watch and observe and see if I can learn something. And then on my next hunt, I've got a better idea of how to approach that area and hunt it. Those are two things that I do on public land. Um, but I think, more importantly, because of the fact that you, you cannot control what's going on. Everybody that goes out there has every much right as you do that, you know, just you're, you, it's a day-to-day -day game on public land. I, and, it's, and it's for me on private land, it is exact opposite. It's not a day-to-day. -day. I am very much opposed to the idea of hunt when you can, spend time in the woods whenever you can. And we've talked about that as well. I hunt specific stands on very specific days because I don't have to hunt them every other day of the week. Mm -hmm. And I believe that I'm increasing my success by only going in there and only putting time in at the right time. Public land, I don't have that. So I'm looking for the freshest sign and I'm trying to capitalize on where the deer are and what I know is most recent because that can change and I'll have no way to know it changed. In other words, if I come back in a week and I'm going to go back and hunt that spot, I don't know what's happened since I was there. The deer may have been completely pushed out of that thicket by somebody or something and i have no way of knowing that mm -hmm. but you know so that, that, that i don't know that that's my mindset that used to be my mindset i don't hunt a lot of public land now but that that used to be the the, the way i hunted the way i approached my, my hunts on public land yep. hey guys want to give you this week's louisiana bow league update we're going to give you the top five teams so far. A lot of close races here. So we've got in fifth place, Button Bobby with 230 and three-quarter points. Fourth place, Bayou Boys, 267 and seven-eighths. 
Number three, Stay Stealthy, 291 and three quarter points. Number two, I'll Stick That, 309 and three quarter. And number one, Stack and Racks, still in first place, 330 and two third points. So it's a pretty close race between first and second right now, but uh, one big buck can make this swing a lot of different directions. Y'all check in next week for next week's Louisiana Bow League update. Thanks. All right, let's go on to question three from Brian Chamberlain. How do you hunt big bucks on small pieces of land? So uh, this is like small track tactics part two. Um, why don't you lead off on this one, Locke? All right. I will say, first of all, I'm going to make all of my um, – I'm going to make the assumption on all of this, this, this opinion here that I know there's a big buck there for some reason. You know, uh, let's, whether I've gotten a picture of him or somebody gave me permission and tells me they've been seeing this big buck there. I know he lives on this small track. I'm not just, just, I'm not, this is not the opinion of somebody who's trying to lure a big buck onto a small track. Okay. That, that clear. So, um, if, if, if my neighbor's uncle gives me permission to hunt the 40 acres behind his house, it's, Hey man, nobody's hunted this in years. Um, I know there's some big deer. I see them from time to time. Nobody really goes back there. You can have at it. You know, the first thing I'm going to think and, and the way I'm going to prepare is to respect the fact that most likely the reason he's seeing a lot of big deer around his property is because nobody bothers him. So I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to go in there with my buddies and ride around on a four wheeler and put up two or three feeders and go clear out shooting lanes and put bait piles and hang cameras everywhere and turn these deer, these deer that live there, turn their world completely upside down. Mm -hmm. Because by doing that, I'm not trying to say that you're going to run them off into the next parish or, or, or anything like that. But what you are going to do is completely change everything before you've ever had a chance to learn anything. And, um, so I think the, the best way to capitalize on the opportunity to hunt a small track that's holding big mature deer is to respect the fact that they're probably there on that small track because it is quiet. It's they're left alone and they're undisturbed. And because of that, I'm going to be very, very judicious in how I hunt it, how I approach it, the days that I hunt it, and I'm going to try to leave it as untouched as it was when I got access to it, because I think that's my best route to success because otherwise I'm probably going to either push them to the neighbor or make them completely nocturnal by going in and making their basically turning their living room upside down. Yep. So everything that you can derive from that, that's my opinion. I mean, there's a lot of logical ways to look at that. There's a lot of do's and don'ts to, to, to derive from that. And I mean, every one of them. So this topic is like, <laughs> I feel like it's my specialty and I wish it wasn't like, I wish I, I wish I wasn't as well versed in hunting tiny ass pieces of property. Like I, I wish, I wish I had done more in my first couple of years of bow hunting than hunting, like hunting like 60 acre tracks. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. and I, I'll start off by saying that I don't believe that there's anything that I or you could say to somebody that has act that sorry maybe doesn't have right now but is going to gain access in the future to a piece of property like this i don't think there's anything that i could say that will actually stop you from ruining it before you realize you've ruined it um that's 
who we are as people. I don't. Saying? I don't think that you, the listener, have the the um, restraint or the wherewithal to say, "Hey, if I go in there, I'm gonna blow this place up." And as human beings, the reason why I think that is because we are the great ruiners of all time. We tear stuff down to rebuild it the way that we want. That's what we do as human beings. For millennia, we've done mm-hmm. that. And in deer hunting, it's no different. We get a piece of property. We assume that this place needs food plots. This place needs shooting lanes. This place, these deer need corn. These deer have to have <laughs> corn. These deer cannot survive on this island of land without corn. And I'm here to tell you, if you know or even believe that there are deer in there, I will confirm to you right now that there are, for a fact. If you cannot help yourself but put cameras and see what they are, please don't put out a corn pile. Please don't put out rice bran as your first move and hang a camera at eye level for the deer. You're going to get excellent pictures for the first week. And then it's gonna the second week's gonna turn into like the first week you might get a couple bucks. And then the second week you're gonna get a couple does. And then you're gonna get yearlings. And then you're gonna get button bucks. And then you're gonna get raccoons. And then you're gonna get hogs if you've got them, right? And mm-hmm. no at no point in time do those fantastic deer that you got on camera the first week ever be like, Oh, it's been a month, I'll go back there. No, they're freaking gone. And you're either going to feed them more heavily to try to bring them back, which I think is what most people do, or you cannot do any of that stuff. Hang a camera high. I mean high. Like like bring a climbing stick and hang it at like eight feet, pointing at a 30-degree angle down on a trail. and Or hang it in an opening you think a deer might come out of, because most likely they will at some point in time. And if you want to go in there and not ruin it, because it is so easy to ruin 40 acres of property. You want to do that. Hang cameras high. Don't let yourself be known. Go scout it on a day where it's going to rain in like two hours. Okay. If 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 the yeah. if it's if the if it's supposed to be raining at one o'clock and you got a piece of property you get access to, go scout it from eleven to noon and get out of there and let that thunderstorm wash every ounce of sign that you were there out of there. And it's unmolested at that point in time. It's still a blank slate. You haven't ruined it. But from that point on, from how you actively hunt it, don't go in it all the time. Don't If you're pushing deer around, back out. But you need to hunt it from the outside in. Don't barge into the middle of it and hunt. Hunt the edges. If you don't see anything, go another 75 yards or 150 yards in. Hunt there. If you don't see anything, go find something another 100 yards in. There's only so many 100-yard lengths in a 40-acre piece of property. You can, you know, within about eight hunts, you can probably hunt the whole thing. And so I would hunt it from the outside in. I would be as non-disruptive as possible, and I would not feed to deer that are not used to being fed and reasonably expect to be successful. That, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it, like we've talked about this in the past, I'm not against feeding. I don't, I personally don't care. I just, I believe that there is a greater satisfaction that comes from killing a deer in its natural world under natural circumstances and they act differently. You, it's almost like you get to witness a different animal, to be honest with you. And that experience is worth more than any bag of four, corn could ever give to me um, again. And so if you like to hunt over feed, I'm not saying that's a problem. If you, if you do feed, the problem is you can't really stop. 
um, without causing disruptions in the deer's life. So you hunt year round. I mean, feed year round, or or at least like a couple months before the season starts, and feed throughout the season and stop in springtime or whatever. But going in there, like if you got a piece of property today and you wanted to hunt it tomorrow and your first move, or you wanted to see what was on it tomorrow, and your first move is go dump out a bag of corn or rice bran and see what shows up, you're already doing harm. And people don't realize it because they, they, they value pictures as a proof of, of, of life, if you will. Yeah. I think there's two things that we're, we're looking at here. I think, so, okay, if you're, if you're the guy who somebody gives you permission you you just have permission. Hey, hey man, you can hunt this 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 place. Nobody hunts it. I don't care if you come in there, you know, do what you want. It's yours. And and you know there's a big deer there for whatever reason. You know, you you know it's a good area or somebody has seen this deer coming and going around this property. Then everything we're saying is undeniably the best way for you to hunt that property to kill that big deer or one of the big deer that live there now the other thing that i think that we have to touch on in answering this question because this is probably very common and this is going to have a very blunt ending to it but i don't mean it any way other than just how i perceive it as fact if if you and your family or you and a couple of your buddies somebody gives you guys a lease or an access on a small piece say hey y'all can hunt it and it becomes your hunting camp and your question is, what are we supposed to do? There's really not a lot you can do. If you guys are all, you all want to go shoot a doe and get your meat, and, you know, and you want to be able to take your kids hunting and you want to be able to go out there and enjoy the land and enjoy hunting and all that, you're, you're beholden to luck. Because if you're putting that much pressure on a small piece of property, I'm not saying that on the opening weekend of bow season that you can't kill a deer on a corn pile before he becomes wary to it. And I'm not saying during the rut that he won't make a mistake and you won't kill him, but there's not a lot of strategic things you can do. Your pressure and your influence as a group, small or large on a small piece of property kind of negates the strategy. Do you agree with that? It really does. And that again, these deer are curious animals and their, their, their need to feed and eat, sometimes outweighs their wariness and they come to a corn pile before they become wary to it. And so somebody's sitting there waiting on them. That happens. Their need to breed and, and, you know, reproduce also gets them in trouble. And, you know, just because you're pressuring an area and turning the deer nocturnal and changing their pattern doesn't mean that they won't still be there at some point and that there's not a day or a couple of days throughout the season where you can't get lucky, but there's, it's hard to really identify a strategy because you've negated the strategic part of, of, of this with the pressure. Yeah. That's just my opinion. And there's no other way to answer it. How am I supposed to kill mature bucks? Well, the only way to do it is to undo everything you've been doing and don't hunt it that way. But if you've got a couple of buddies and you guys are all hunting and you all want to kill a doe for the freezer and you want to go out there on the weekends and enjoy the land, there's nothing wrong with that. But just understand that you've just really, really limited yourself on being able to strategically hunt for mature bucks on that small piece because they're not stupid and no. they're way more wary to you way sooner than you believe. And you just got to hope you get lucky at that point. Well, look, I'm going to add one more thing, one more dynamic to this you know, situation, this scenario, if you will, um, and then we'll go on to the next question. But um, where that tract is pro- is located has 
a lot to do with how you should treat it. Um, if it, I, I would, I would be willing to say that if, if the land is standalone, meaning like there's not anybody really pressuring the land around it. Like, let's say it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, just, just for fun. Let's say it's, you got a 40 acre square in the middle of a pasture, like, like, like this is the Midwest or something. Okay. An you, island. You got an island sort of, of land, right? Where there's not people hunting it up against the fence line, right? Putting out mm-hmm. more piles and bait. All right. Then, um, that's, that's kind of, I uh, should have clarified. That's kind of my situation. Um, when I, when I was talking was, if it's un if it is totally uncorrupted land, then the smallest of of um inter- smallest amount of interference is going to have a massive ripple effect on how the deer behave there. On the other hand, if your forty acre block is like adjo- adjacent to two huge hunting leases with fifty members each, and all of them have six stands, and all of them have a feeder at every stand, and and it, people are hunting the hell out of the, the fence lines around your 40 acres, number one, you probably have a, a miniature reserve um, where there is no pressure there, and it might be where the deer are going anyway, which means that you going in there isn't going to hurt because the people hunting around it are probably going to push them back into you until you have the chance to ruin it yourself if you make some bad decisions. But um, the pressure around you should be taken into consideration. Um and asking a couple questions like to the guy that gives you permission or the family member that lets you hunt their land. Hey, what do you know about the people that butt up against this property line? What about the club that butts up against this property line? And see how they hunt. If if they're like a, you know, eight pointer better, nothing under 125 inches, nothing under five year old bucks type of type of club, you might have like the golden ticket. Like not only do you have a great piece of property, but you have giants that are trying to escape hunting pressure from next to you. But um, the way that I originally answered my my section was kind of if it was an island um, because that's what I was thinking about in my head for some reason. But um, mm. anyway, um, I think that's a pretty decent uh, coverage of that question. We, if you want to learn more and much more in depth, um, we did a, uh, a podcast with a gentleman named Andrew uh, I can't remember the episode number, but it's called Small Track Tactics. Um, it's on. Uh, it's uh, from season one of the podcast. So, um, question four, we got three left, is from Robert Weber, and he wants to know how you kill mature bucks on public land. So tell him how. Oh, t- tell him how you do that, Locke. <laughs> No, he he uh, he. Uh, it's funny out of the, the people that submitted questions. That was the only one that had like fifteen replies, and most of well, them, most of them were like, "Yeah, I think we all want to know that one." But I well, think we I, can give I some decent answers. Yeah, I think, and I've killed a few um, in my younger days. I, like again, I haven't hunted public land much in in probably the last decade. But um, so I have this theory about deer in general um whether it's public or private pressured or relatively unpressured i don't think there's really hardly any any anywhere you you're hunting is is not unpressured but um you know what i mean so my theory is that 
you can break down your hunting season and your pursuit of mature buck by considering and accepting the fact that there are a limited number of days that that mature buck is going to allow himself to be vulnerable enough for you to kill him specifically with a bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. And that is to me just a fact. Now that's a sliding scale. Because if you have a large piece of private property that's heavily managed and lightly pressured, then there's probably a lot more of those days. There's definitely a lot more of those days. If you're on a heavily pressured where place that's pine thicket and the terrain is not advantageous and there's a lot of pressure, then there's a lot less of those days. And everywhere in between. And so public land to me falls in between. Because some public land and some areas of public land um, are hard to get to and they might as well be private and other areas of public land are easily accessible and hunted hard and hunted a lot and they um, are a lot more like you know the heavily pressured area so somewhere in there your you know uh, your intuition and the, and the work that you put in trying to gather intelligence and, and figure things out you, you got to come up with you know, uh, an educated guess on exactly how many days you can reasonably expect the mature deer in the area you're after is going to actually get on his feet and give you a chance to kill him with a bow and arrow mm -hmm. or any gun or any, any, any for that. And then, you know, once you've settled with that in your mind and it's a guess, there ain't, there, there's no, obviously you don't know the answer to this, but you know, as soon as you settled in that in your mind, now now you got to start breaking down the season and looking at okay, so what are the days where this likely is to happen? Well, that's obviously going to be three things. It's going to be a early season summer patterns, b weather change throughout the season, or c the rut. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with those? I mean, I think it's fair to break it down into those three things. Mm -hmm. So with that being with that being said, the way to kill a mature buck on public land is a find a mature buck on public land. Mm -hmm. However you want to do that, whether that's through, you know, different methods of using trail cameras to analyze the deer herd and the area, you know, uh, by finding the deer or kind of sorting through what's going on in an area using trail cameras, whether that's boots on the ground scouting Whatever it is, find a mature deer, scout him, and figure out the you you know the deer or the deer in the area their summer pattern and hunt them smart and hard in the early season before they get off of their summer pattern. If that doesn't work, be very judicious from that time until the rut. Be very judicious on how much you pressure that 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 area where that deer is and hunt him on days where the weather dictates he might get up and walk around during the daylight in a place that you can hunt and you can get a shot at it mm -hmm. because you're, he's not going to go far and you're probably going to, you're going to narrow down that number of days, the, those number of potential encounters by pressuring him on days that you're not going to kill him. Let's just face the fact he's not a five-year-old mature buck because he just, willy-nilly gets up and goes and finds some acorns to eat anytime on public land that's just not that's nonsensical so we can all agree to that i think yep so if you're going in and out of this area with this mindset that well the more hours i put in this hardwood bottom the more likely i am to encounter him there's some math that supports that claim but i think 
my experience tells me, and I think that logic about what we know about deer behavior tells you that you're actually limiting the number of times he's actually going to walk through there because he knows you're there more often than not, period. Yep. The way you're going to kill him is to be there on the right day and get there without him knowing you're there. So picking the days, the whether it's morning, evening, or whatnot, and then, of course, during the rut, if you can identify what phase of the rut is going on, and how, you know, how the deer are acting in that regard, putting the time in during the phase of the rut where that deer does not have a doe and he's desperately seeking for one. That's yep. how you kill a mature buck anywhere, but on public land, it's the same. You know, you gotta, you, you know, there's no, I don't personally think that other than pure luck, you're just going to go find a pretty area with a little bit of deer sign or even a lot of deer sign and you're going to pinball around these different cool looking spots that you found where you know there's some deer in the area and you're just going to sit there and put hours in and hours in and i just don't ever see a mature buck i think to kill a mature buck especially on a place like public land your one goal has to be a you have to almost be like a calculated predator mm -hmm. and and i and i think that you know you there's some there's some there's some luck that kind of sits over here my little my little graph that or whatever presentation, my PowerPoint. Okay. There's a slide at the end of this uh, virtual PowerPoint that I'm presenting here. That's luck. And it, it is inevitable and it has to be on your side to some effect. Mm -hmm. um, there's just no denying that. So, you know, that luck can be in the form of right place, right time. It could also be in the form of you being off work on that right day and being able to hunt or the guy who's hunting in that area doesn't kill the deer the day before you get a chance to hunting all those things. But aside from that, I think if you want to kill mature deer anywhere, and we're talking public land here, so that applies here too. If you want to kill mature deer, you have to have a plan. You can't just go hunt in an area that's convenient, that looks good, where there's deer sign, where somebody's been seeing a big buck cross the road. All those things are just luck and they work for some people sometimes, but if you want to get consistent at being able to do it and put yourself in a good, you have to accept the fact that that deer is who he is and what he is for a reason. And he's not going to let you kill him every day. There's not a successful um, lottery ticket that's going to get pulled every day. There's only going to be two or three successful lottery tickets most likely throughout the season. And the, 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 the smarter and, and, and more calculated way that you find to bridge that gap between figuring out when those chances are is – that's really all you can do. And then the rest of it's left to look. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think there's, um, I think there's a pretty good relationship between trying to kill a mature buck amongst a whole lot of younger bucks and does and yearlings and like the rest of the herd and trying to catch like a nine pound speckled trout. Um, nine pound, nine pound speckled trout are not swimming along with 11 and seven eighths inch long speckled trout. They're not doing it. You're not going to catch them in the same spot. Literally, catch catch them in the same spot. You most of the time, your trophy trout fishermen, people like if you if you want to if you like this stuff, you should definitely check out Speckled Truth podcast. I mean, Chris Bush is um, phenomenal, phenomenal at this stuff. You should definitely check them out. But from what I know about catching large speckled trout, is you do things that you would not do to catch a smaller school trout even up to 17 18 22 inches i mean a, a nine pound speckled trout is a 30 inch speckled trout okay mm -hmm. and 
for that reason, they are they're different animals in the sense that they don't really run with other ones. Uh, even like them, they don't run with other ones, and they're definitely not smaller running with smaller ones. And um, when it comes to killing a mature buck, or even let's let's get off killing a mature buck. I, I, I sound so cliche even repeating that. Let's talk about locating a mature buck. Let's talk about getting kind of close to one. I think that's a more reasonable expectation than killing one. Let's talk about how you hone in on where they might be. Um, number one, if you truly, really want to kill a specific deer on a specific piece of public land, my answer to that is you just got to hang a ton of cameras and you need to hang them from early summer and scout after the season and just, I'm, I'm talking almost block off, like if you're hunting a 20,000 acre piece of property, block off 2,000 acres at a time and grid it off and say, there's something here, there's not something here. And just start to dismiss areas. If I were, if I had set the goal for myself to hunt specific deer, and I, and I don't want to say a specific deer, but a specific caliber of deer on public land. I'm going to try and find places that people are not going to go. That does not always mean that it's the furthest, deepest, farthest spot. Um, sometimes that's a pin oak thicket that is 15 acres that you wouldn't have further than a 20-yard shot on the ground in at most. Um, and I would start hanging cameras not out in the open, not out where you can get you know the 80-foot shots on the camera uh, at night. I would hunt interior thicket cameras where there's no chance that anybody would ever find them but you know good and well what's living in there and what's in that those thick spots and then hunt the edges of that once you've honed in on an area so like it's it's almost almost like the shotgun approach you're hanging a bunch of cameras and then you're constantly checking them every week or two two weeks not too often um, and you're honing in on certain areas and you're moving cameras and saying, okay, I have nothing on these five. I'm going to put them over here. Um, it sounds expensive to do that, but I got to tell you, just as a side note, those Tasco Walmart cameras that are 28 bucks at yes. Walmart, dude, you should buy, four of them you this should year. buy every one of them that you see on the shelf because for what they are, they're pretty baller. Not going to lie. Mm-hmm. They are good. I'm not sponsored by Tasco. I'm sponsored by saving money in my bank account, and those things are sweet. Um, yep. Your other option is there are a lot of affordable camera options out there for cell cameras. Now, the um, coverage plan might eat you up on an annual basis because um, you're going to pay two and a half, almost three times as much annual for a plan as you will for the cost of the camera, but you were going to spend that money anyway on gas and time to check all those cameras, so it's a wash. Um, so... I would start with cameras and scouting. My real way of answering this question is piggybacking what you said. Hunt specific days in areas that you believe big deer would live in. Fish areas you believe big trout would swim in. Right? Hunt big hunt areas where you believe a deer, from your best judgment, from what you know about deer hunting, from what everything we've talked about on the podcast, hunt areas that you believe that give you good reason to think that there would be a big deer there. It could be larger than average rubs. It could be higher off the ground than average rubs. Um, it could be that you're finding a ton of sign from, I, I don't, I'm, I'll admit I don't really know this much about this. I don't, 
truly believe you can tell the difference between a sex of a deer based on how their their crap looks but um let's say you could uh hunt places with i would imagine bigger deer take bigger shits okay so i don't really believe that because i don't use that that much as an indicator but um there's a lot of things that will kind of give away that and then the other hand is like hunt places that don't look extremely well traveled maybe not and i don't mean wide open places but i mean like you're not necessarily looking for an area that has a lot of deer sign you're looking for a place that has a big deer sign in one place like is holding one deer okay there aren't going to be three five and a half year old bucks living in the same 20 yard circle in palmettos okay um Every giant big buck bed that I've ever found that I've been able to say, wow, this is a buck bed and not sound like I'm just quoting something Dan Infault said. The only way I knew it's a buck bed is because everything around it was trashed. Okay. Like, like it's ACDC wrecking a freaking hotel room in the eighties. I'm talking destroyed. And the palmettos are destroyed. The pinnocks are destroyed. The the freaking saplings are destroyed. I mean, the, you can tell that there has been a big deer fight going on. And but other than that, I honestly could not tell you the difference between a buck bed and a doe bed and be telling you the truth. If you hear me giving that advice, know that I'm lying, because I don't really know. And in Louisiana, I would argue that anybody truly knows the difference between a duck and a, bed, a, a buck and a doe bed, but. I will say that if you find a larger than average bed by itself and everything's trashed around it and there's no other deer sign within 30 yards of it, probably yeah. should hunt near that. <laughs> well, I think, I think too, there, there, there is, you know, you hate to give the advice or, or, or throw an opinion out there that's speculative because that's, sure. that's not really what we're trying to do, but I think it's safe for us to say that, you know, starting with, the assumption that you are being real with yourself and you're not trying to have unrealistic goals. You're not trying to go kill a, you know, 180 inch deer on a piece of public property that, you know, just doesn't have those kind of genetic and that kind of deer herd. But with that being said, if you're being real here and I'm looking for a mature book, right? I'm not, I'm not looking for a certain inches. I'm not looking for, you know, a certain, uh, characteristic. I'm just looking for a big mature deer. Okay. So in Louisiana, if you're hunting and choosing to hunt on a piece of public property where I I'm accepting the fact, I know that there's deer here, you know, I, I can see them when, when I make these certain types of hunts, I see young bucks, I see does. If you're seeing young bucks and does, there's a big buck around somewhere. He might not be right there with them. He may be, uh, you know, in a, uh, have a little bit different pattern, but he's there during that summer pattern. They feed together during that rut. If there's little bucks chasing does around the big, he's a, there's one around somewhere like, you know, I, I, you can safely assume that, you know, we have a healthy enough deer herd in this state that if you're hunting a piece of public property that is, you know, got a good deer herd and you're seeing plenty of deer sign, um, you you know you don't have to go look for a Martian. He's not a Martian. He's there. Yeah. You know, um, and 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 then it it becomes more about how you hunt, and as as much as as anything, you, 
you you gotta you know you just gotta you gotta be smart about what you're doing and try to get on his level and and I think you can take yourself out of the game a little bit, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. You can try to overdo it and take yourself out of the game when the reality of it is you have to accept the fact that he's five years old and he's a mature buck for a reason. You know, I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say like, I'm going to pick on my buddy, Bruce. Okay. If he's listening to this, I'm sorry, but I'm going to, I'm fixing the pick on him. My buddy, Bruce from T3 calls. He hunted um, up at, at up at Brad's with me this year, and he was hunting a farm in Nebraska, and he had a great hunt. He killed a 159-inch typical 12-point on his fourth day hunting, and he was hunting a farm that was um, really wasn't a farm. They call everything a farm. This was a piece of property. There was no agriculture on this, so it wasn't a farm of any kind. It was just a piece of property along the Missouri River, mostly CRP and willow thickets. And he, you know, he hunted a couple different stands on that piece, and that's known to be one of the properties that has the highest number of deer. Well, the day before he killed the deer, he made the comment to me, he's like, I just don't think there's a big deer in there. But he was seeing eight, nine bucks a hunt. He was seeing deer from spikes all the way up to borderline shooters and tons of does, rut activity. And I'm like, dude, he's like, I've hunted it for four days. If there was a big deer in there, I'd have seen him by now. Specifically, he's referring to the fact that it's a lot of open country. It's CRP. Deer can't really move around there without him seeing them, you know. And I said, dude, there's undeniably more than one big deer there. But they're big for a reason. You're not just going to see them every day. Just because you're seeing all these other deer, you're not going to see them. So, you know, he was – it was not not that Bruce is not smarter than that. Bruce was just, uh, you know, just kind of getting – frustrated because he hunted really hard all day long for four days yeah and i and i said dude the deer is there there's no doubt he's there with all those does and all those deer in there there's a couple of big deer in there and he's not gonna you're not just gonna see him i mean this is not you know a high fence private ranch where you know you just sit around with a spot and scope and you'll eventually see him walk around and he's only gonna do he's only gonna come through there once or twice yep. and you just got to be there when he does it well the next day here he comes, 159-inch typical 12-point, and he texts me and says, I just shot a stud. And my response, and Kyler, you are going to greatly appreciate this <laughs> because it is your type of, of I, humor. Yeah. My response was, there's no way you shot a stud because there aren't any on that farm. <laughs> no- <laughs> I said, I don't know how big the deer is. I haven't seen a picture, but there's no way he's a stud because there's not any on that farm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But, you know, to, to, to the, you know, but just to the point that, you know, I guess – you know, keep it simple, stupid. If you're hunting a place, a public land, and you're frustrated that you haven't been able to kill a mature buck, you know, you're happy that you're seeing a lot of deer and your scouting has paid off and put you in the place where there's a lot of deer. You probably only got to kind of approach things or, or maybe go at something just a little bit different. He's there. Don't overthink it and take yourself out of the game. And the only other comment I'm going to make about that, and this is kind of the the uh i guess the bottom of the barrel comment is after your third or fourth sit when you were sure he was there and you just haven't seen him yet if you you know you finally get that perfect day and the deer are really moving and that three-year-old 15 inch eight point that's a fine public land buck comes by if you want to kill a mature buck don't shoot that deer yeah because if he's on his feet you're that much closer to the the one that's a little bit older to him being on his feet i agree I agree 100%. And, you know, that's that's uh 
you you know, if you start telling yourself, oh, that's a fine public land deer right there. I can't pass that up. Well, that's fine. There's no problem with that. But don't go home and complain to your buddies that I can't ever kill a mature buck when you've got, you know, a three-year-old eight point on, on you know, hanging in, out in your, in your, uh, in your, in your shed or whatever. You've killed one every year. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what you're hunting for. But you, you know, if you're going to do that on the, you know, the, the second rut hunt that you make, you shoot the first three-year-old, you get a good shot at, you, you know, you're, you're kind of hurting yourself there because if you, if you see three, if you see three deer walking out of a thicket, the oldest deer will always be last. He will never mm-hmm. lead that line. He will never lead that line. He'll never even be the second one in that line. The oldest deer will always come out last. So logically, if you shoot the first one, you will never yep. shoot the second one, period. Well, let, I'll say it, that that's a very pointed example, you know, a very well, if you're obvious use, if pointed you're using, example in, in a, a very specific situation, I guess is if what If you're I mean. using one deer to, to, to give indication for what another deer might do, I think it's probably yeah. pretty pretty uh, accurate what i think about that i, I think it's 100 percent accurate and it, it's a it's very pointed but i here's how here's how my brain looks at it at, at that when i made that comment i have gotten to a point personally where what i what i like to do is i like to hunt big not not, not i don't i don't have this antler restriction i just like to to hunt mature bucks with my buck that's just what I like to do. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these people with strong opinions about how other people hunt. I don't, that's just what I like to do. That's how I like to spend my time. So I've learned a few lessons about this, whether it's public or private, because I have committed to not only, only shooting mature deer, but I shoot them all on camera like the last six or seven years. And what I've learned is one of the greatest indicators, like the easiest way, the easiest way, to kill a big mature buck, and I'm talking about in the moment, the easiest way is to find the deer on that one day or two days where he's on his feet looking for a doe. Not a deer that's following a doe, not a deer that's up before weather feeding, none of that. The easiest way to kill a big mature buck is to catch him when he gets up and starts looking for a doe because he is three sheets to the wind and he's not he's not what he normally is and what he normally is is damn near impossible to kill Mm -hmm. so when you catch him so what i'm saying is if we're using what little indicators that god throws out there for us to understand nature if you see if you go and you say all right i know based off of my scouting what my buddies have been seeing what i've been told at the skin and shed etc etc Man, the deer are really getting going. The rut's getting started. They're in pre-rut. They're starting to look for does. They're going to start chasing does. I expect to see. If if that's if that's you and you show up and you put all of your scouting to play and you go to the spot where you think, I'm in the area, there's a big deer here, I want to kill a big mature buck on public land, and you climb up in that tree and it gets daylight and a three-year-old eight-point comes cruising by and you can't scare him off. Like, he's paying you no attention and he makes himself easy. There, what I'm saying is, if you want to kill a mature buck, you have just been given a sign that you are that much closer to doing it. Because if he's up doing it, the big deer's right behind it. I don't mean literally the last deer to come out of the thicket. I mean you're literally that much closer. Maybe this is the day. But it's not going to be the day if you shoot that deer. Correct. 
But yep. that's what you're looking for. If you're looking for us to give you something to, to key on, how do I know? How do I kill a big mature deer? That's one of the things you're looking for. If you start seeing little bit bigger deer, all you've been seeing all those little fork horn deer and spikes all year long, you see them, you know, better on some days, less on others, and you're trying to figure it out. And as soon as you get a shot at a decent rack deer, you take it. Well, you just got one of the biggest indicators of when you need to start hunting harder and what you need to start looking for, and you just wipe the slate clean because you shot that deer. And there's nothing wrong with that, but if you're telling me you want to kill a big mature deer, that's there's not a greater indicator, and I can promise you there's not an easier way to kill him than to be in the tree when he hits his ground. And he's only going to do it for a day or two because he's the big boy, and he's not going to do it until those does are basically ready. So it ain't going to take him long, and then once he locks down with a doe, you're not going to kill him, period. You're not going to kill him unless you get a shot at him with a rifle at a distance where he's locked down with that doe, like in a CRP field or something. But we're talking about Louisiana bow hunter. So that's what I mean by that is if you're looking for signs, you know, I, 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 that's the, to me, I get plum giddy when I see that. When I'm hunting around the rut, whether it's in the Midwest or whether it's in Mississippi or Louisiana, when it's that first cold morning and I'm expecting the rut to get going and all of a sudden I start seeing a little bit bigger deer, two and three year old rack bucks, and I see them up on their feet, I get more picky because I know that I'm right there in that window and yeah. at any moment. He's gonna get up and start looking. All right. So let's break. Let's go down to. Let's go to question five. Next one. So this is a gentleman named Matt Phillips sent us a direct message and said, "What do you prefer more, morning or evening hunts? And do you think that one is more successful than the other?" So um, once again. A little, you know, very broad question. There could be a lot of factors. You could be hunting public land uh, with very little pressure. You could be hunting private land with a ton of pressure and just as many food plots as there are pressure. Just as many uh, deer feeders as, as anything. So we don't really, I don't know how you're hunting clearly, but I would say um, that uh, I typically have greater success in the evenings um, than I do in the mornings. Um, I... I think that deer are going to move no matter what. If they if they if they want to get on their feet and move, they're going to do that at any point in time of the day. So saying one point in time of day is better than others is only a small sample size of one person's experience to say definitively that this is better than the other. Um, I have places where I always see deer in the morning and I never see them in the evening, and vice versa. Um, so what I would say when when it comes to feeding in morning and evening times um i'll tell you my tactics um i believe that a deer is going to come out since they are crepuscular meaning they're going to move at the most right before it gets dark into the night and they're going to move a little after it gets light and then it's going to shut down the main daytime movement is going to be far less active than the nighttime movement and that is with or without pressure deer is that's just if 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 an animal has eyes on the side of its head they are going to always be on alert and they're going to try and stay alive that's their number one thing so being alive at nighttime is a lot easier than staying alive in the daytime so i'm going to try and hunt up against where i think those deer are going to travel to um, right before it gets light and right before it gets dark. So I'm hunting a lot of what I call staging areas. 
um, which are going to be the areas up against the field or up against an opening or right on the side of a thicket, right? Not 50 yards from a thicket, but like you're all, if you're not hunting in the thicket, you you know treat the thicket as a as a, a staging area where that's going to be where the deer is going to get up and stand quite literally for f- up to 15 or 20 minutes and observe where he's thinking about going in the near future. And if you can get in there undisturbed, that's where you're going to kill a lot of your deer. And it does not matter morning or evening. If you think they're going to get up and move at a certain time, whether it's right at first light or right at daytime, right at dark, then I would be where they are going to get up and do their short-term movements, like not their long travel, but like they're not like a hundred yards at most. Where are they going to stop and stage up before they keep going into a more vulnerable part of the property? Um, that's why a lot of bow hunters love thickets. Now, if I had to describe that, think of a place where you have no more than a fifteen-yard shot. Can you? Can you force yourself to hunt that type of place? Or do you have to hunt big open areas where you can see farther but maybe not kill anything? So um, that's kind of my answer, just to kind of give a short, quick answer on that. I don't think there's any right or wrong. I, I I will say, though, two Sundays ago, and you know this, Locke, because I, I couldn't do a podcast that evening because I was searching for a deer. I shot a very nice buck on public land on Sunday evening and he was coming out of a very 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 thick field like in impenetrable field unhuntable field and I was hunting a hardwood line that was dropping red oaks and I saw three deer that night I saw a spike let it pass I saw a doe let it pass because where I was hunting was known for nice deer and at about what it gets dark at like 525 now or something like that or like 508 or before 510 this buck came straight to me and I made a I made a really big problem a really big big uh, big mistake when I found this spot I walked further than I wanted to I walked closer to the field line than I should have with my boots and when I went to go find a tree, I was forced to set up 15 yards further back the direction that I came, which meant that any deer coming out of that wood line or coming coming out of that field into the wood line, anything from my 12 o'clock to my 2 o'clock was pretty much comp- – he was going to have to cross my boot trail. Anything from my 12 o'clock to my 9 o'clock was you – know, I hadn't gone over there. And sure as hell, here comes this buck at my 1 o'clock. And at 22 yards, quartering away – while he's smelling my boot trail, I have a small opening in the trees kind of in between me and him. And I take it and, of course, I clip a limb, hit low and further back than I wanted. think I entered rear right gut and exited possibly liver, or definitely, definitely liver because of the blood and possibly left lung. Maybe. Don't really know for sure. Bloodbath trail for like 500 yards. Um, ran out of ran out of uh, battery. Me and my buddy ran out of battery on the headlamp, and um, came back the next day. Found a little bit more blood before it all dried up, and we we never found that deer. I never found it. Um, called the dog. Nobody was available to come at that place on that day, and um, that 
plan, that strategy, like I said earlier, that it worked perfect. Everything was perfect except for the fact that I had walked where I wanted to kill something. I, and I, I'm literally kicking myself the entire hunt because you should not have walked there. You should not have gone there. You should not have gone there. But that deer did exactly what I anticipated it to do. The wind was out of the north. It was coming out of the field, in my face, into the woods. And I I will admit, and not to go too far off of a different subject, but I have noticed that deer walk with the wind more than they walk against it. I'm not saying that definitively, but I've noticed that personally deer will walk with the wind more than they've walked against it. And the way that I know that is because I have more deer coming from out in front of me than I do coming up from behind me, and I always have the wind in my face. And um, that buck did exactly what I wanted him to do, came a little further to the right than I wish he had, and he locked up on my boot scent. I'm talking... 0.00% chance of him crossing it like it's not there. And when he turned, quartering away, and you know, like, it, I, I'm not going to, you know, lie, oh, he's five and a half year old. I don't know. There was a tree in between me and him. I know he had a very nice rack on him. I know he would have not have been my biggest deer, but he definitely would have been very respectable public land deer. And big deer like that, they don't bolt in those situations. They just disappear. They vaporize. You ever notice that? They don't they slither. They they're like, "You know what? You know there's <laughs> You know that Homer Simpson gif where he's like pushes himself into the hedges behind him, he's like hiding?" Yeah. That's what they mm-hmm. do. They're just like, yep. "And I'll see you later. All right, I'm out." Right? And um that's what he was about to do. And you know what I did? I took a shot I should not have taken. I will admit that 100%. It was not that low probability, but it was it was one of those, I'm either going to make this and I'm pretty sure I can thread that needle, or I'm going to watch him walk away. And um, I, mean, I took the shot. I felt confident in it and um, caught the bad side of that coin flip and lost him. And I, I think the thing that bothers me, I don't know if he's alive or not, but... That deer did what I thought he was going to do. He was, that was an evening hunt. He came out of the field and he was feeding on oaks, uh, on oaks. He uh, he was feeding on acorns right up until his nose brought him to my boot scent and he was like, "Hey, this is uh not normal. This is not right. I think I'm yeah. going to go the other direction." Um and so I do better on evening hunts than morning hunts. What about you? So, uh, okay, so I I I will say First of all, that I do believe that my experience has taught me that just given a very wide range of conditions, not speaking to a certain time of the year or even a certain weather, just overall, deer are more inclined to move in the evenings. Um, with that being said, I prefer to hunt in the mornings, and some of that's biased because I just I, I literally prefer the experience personally of like sitting in the, the woods watching open. the woods wake up yeah some of it is that but so just in talking about like strategy because that's just kind of how my whole world evolves when it comes to deer hunting i mean i i try to look for the nuances in between things to make me a better hunter and so one of my favorite ways to hunt probably my absolute favorite way to hunt is to hunt deer that are traveling after daylight so, with everything I just said, I think deer are more 
likely by majority, whether it's a yearling or the oldest, most mature buck on your property, I think deer are more likely to move in the evenings just by their nature. However, I think that when it comes to hunting mature deer, whether that be old, a big old doe or, or a big mature buck, speaking specifically about the buck, I think you're more likely to encounter a deer after daylight moving back to where he's supposed to go than he is to make the decision to come out before dark. Um, I think your probabilities are higher because of just, I think their nature is such that in the evening time, you know, unless you're hunting a transition area like you're talking about, uh, I, and even that, I just don't think those deer stand up and move, and I certainly don't think they show up very many days before dark. However, I think you got a better chance of catching him in the daylight trying to get back to somewhere. So I prefer that, and the I guess kind of the strategy reason behind that is because I feel like I can game plan, and I can approach, and I can get in a stand more undetected that way because if you think about it if my plan is to hunt a deer that's out being overnight then logically i can probably get to where i'm going knowing where i expect him to be and i'm not going to walk through there um so those are just kind of some of the ways i think about it i mean if you know if you're just um obviously kind of just looking for highest odds i think especially hunting a feed area if you're going to sit on a food plot or even hunting over a feed tree or anything uh, i think you're more likely to see more numbers of deer making evening hunts but i think you can strategically hunt deer better in the morning and i think that you have a better chance of catching a deer making a mistake what any kind of deer making a mistake in the morning i think they're a lot more deliberate in the evening um and I guess for me personally, I've, I've sat and thought about this. I've even tried to count, and it's just impossible for me to just I, – my mind end up drifting off as I'm trying to think about it. I don't know if I've killed more deer in the morning or the evening. I really don't. I, I, it's, I, I really kind of think it's split down the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know about total numbers of deer, but I guess if I'm thinking about memorable deer, bucks, and stuff like that, I really think it's kind of split down the middle. I've killed a bunch of deer um, in both – and I know without a doubt, I've only shot at, in my life, and I've been bow hunting since I was 11 years old. I killed my first deer with a bow when I was 13. And I've only killed, I've only shot at three bucks, three big bucks that I didn't kill, that I missed. One of them I injured, the other two I missed. And all three of them were... Sorry, two of the three of them were in the morning. One of them was right at dark. So, um, you know, I killed deer in Kansas in the morning, killed a deer in Nebraska last year in the morning, killed deer in Louisiana last year in the morning, killed a deer in Missouri this year in the afternoon, um, killed the deer in Missouri 2016 in the afternoon. So, I don't know, man. I, that's a hard one. I, I like I said that my best, my best opinion, or I, I guess if you want to call it advice, is I just think that if you know your property, or even if you just know the area you're hunting publicly, I think you can make a better game plan for uh, what the weather's doing, what the moon phases are doing, and you can kind of strategically 
hunt the morning times there's you can apply a little more strategy i think in the evenings you 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 kind of have a set of strategy up front but you're just really beholden to whether the deer decide to move before dark or not yeah um one other thing i'll add real quickly to that is if we think about like a deer's responsibilities uh like in its Mm -hmm. day deer's responsibility is to eat shit reproduce it you know once couple times a year and then um not get eaten and then not and then stay alive yeah not die okay like that's his job those we just named the deer's job job duty is Mm -hmm. is those those things and um to me i think work starts for a deer like they get like getting up out of bed out of like getting up to start your day i believe starts in the afternoon for a deer and then I think their work day ends after the sun goes down. And the midday during the day, typically, not saying deer don't move during the day. Don't Please don't go that far with it. But um, I would say, theoretically, not theoretically, I think it's been proven that deer move more at night than they do during the middle of the daytime. That doesn't mean that they don't move during the daytime. That doesn't mean that they don't move at night. And... Mm-hmm. I think that a deer's day starts around 3 p.m. on the afternoon is after it's had its coffee and reads the paper and, and takes a crap and gets up and starts walking around. And then right at dark, it's like, okay, I'm ready to go to work. And then his yep. job throughout the night is do those things we named. And then his workday ends, the shift ends a little bit after the sun goes down. I mean, sun comes up the next morning, and they might stay around doing some extracurricular activities for the next two or three hours. But pretty much, you know, after 9 o'clock, that's kind of over with. Um, and that's how I've always viewed it. And so I always think like for us, the days, the deer's beginning of his day is our end of our day. Right. It's like, we're like, that's, we were talking earlier mm-hmm. about, you know, human perception and, and thinking like a deer versus, um, uh, imposing the way we think on how we think deer should move or, or whatever. Um, I think the end of our day is the beginning of a deer's day. And for that reason, I think a deer is going to be more active in the evening when it starts what it's doing for the deer's day, which is night to us. And I think it's going to be a little less active or they've already called it quits early um, before the sun comes up uh, or and, and shortly after the sun comes up. So that's how I've always viewed it. Not to say morning hunts aren't worth it, but that's uh, my two cents on it. Um, let's get to uh, Let's get to our last question that we have, which you are – um, this is the one that you picked or one of the ones that you picked that you wanted to talk about is, um, how does weather affect deer movement? Um, pressure and rain, temperature changes, fronts, wind, things like that. So you lead us off on that one. So I'm going to start off by saying that I've never claimed to be a scientist, but I do consider myself a semi-professional meteorologist. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. I, I spent a lot of years in baseball, and I had to spend a lot of time watching the weather because of rainouts and all that kind of stuff. So uh, but I say that kind of jokingly about rain. But uh, in saying that, I don't understand the science. And I think in this question, the person that asked this question specifically asked about the science behind it. So I'm going to just say up front – I don't know the science behind why high-pressure systems make deer more active, but it unequivocally does. There is no doubt that deer move by majority. Again, there's an exception to every rule, 
but by majority, pressured, non-pressured, public, private, whatever. Deer move better when the barometric pressure is high and rising, and they move less when the barometric pressure is low or falling. And and I think that kind of applies to fishing too. I'm not a huge fisherman. I'm a recreational fisherman at best, but I think fish the fish bite um, kind of corresponds with that. Um, I don't know why, but I know that that is that that is an undeniable fact proven over and over and over. Um, and another thing, you know, aside from the barometric pressure, just in general, I think that we would all be wise as deer hunters to accept the, uh, I guess, the coin, the phrase that has been made popular through the Drury's DeerCast app that a whitetail's movement ultimately revolves around the weather. And I think um, that's a simple way to put these animals live outdoors 24 hours a day seven days a week, 365 days a year, and the weather is a huge deal to a deer. Everything about it, everything about their comfort level, everything about the changing of seasons and what they have to eat and where they have to go to eat it, everything about how well they can see and smell and hear. And we just talked about, you know, they don't have that many job duties, right? And one of the huge ones is to stay alive. So the weather has a huge impact on how the deer perceives its world. And so if you ask me to give an opinion, I cannot give you a fact because I don't know. I've never read anything about it, and I don't know. My opinion would be, like, educated guess that deer can smell better when the barometric pressure is higher. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that does to thermals, but just generally speaking, I don't know if the air is thinner or cleaner or what. I think that maybe low pressure, humid air is maybe harder for deer to smell and they can't smell as far away or as distinctly or something because we all know that they rely that much on their, their, the, uh, on scent. And I, and I don't see how barometric pressure can affect sight or sound. So my educated guess, just based off of just my educated experience of watching deer and hunting them is that if the, you know, I don't think it can be as simple as, oh, they just feel better. I don't I don't think that's it. I think that everything a deer does is calculated around those very simple job duties that they have. And and so that would be my guess. But I think as a hunter, you know, the weather is absolutely vitally important in, in you in you being strategic about how you hunt. Um I think big weather changes. I mentioned that earlier when we we're talking about killing trying to kill a mature buck. Um one of the three factors as to when those few opportunities he may give you is going to be on a big weather change. Um, uh, again, I don't know the science of why that works, but it's, uh, you know, it's just a proven fact by however many people over the years have spent time in the deer woods. You see deer moving ahead of and behind weather fronts. Yep. Um, uh, it, for whatever reason, that's how God made them and they can, you know, I guess for a simple way to put it, they can predict the weather and they know when it's going to change. And it, 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 it puts them on their feet a lot. You know, I don't know why. Um, but I think, uh, I, I think another thing to dispel, I, I personally, I am dispelling this. I'm not saying this. I may be wrong. I've heard a lot of people over the years make the claim that I, I can remember these old men in hunting camp when I was a kid. Um, 
you know, it'd be a rainy, dreary day, humid. Maybe it might be cool. It might not be hot, but just, man, it's a day to spend a day in the woods. I, I just don't believe that. I, I, I've, I've hunted. I've killed deer in the rain, but I've killed way more deer when it's bluebird, beautiful, high pressure, and cold goes a long way with that too. But just in general, any time of the season, if it's a high pressure with a north wind, even if it's just a light breeze, and it's a bluebird day, I see and I've killed more deer in those conditions. And I've had way more times when I've tried to hunt on these nasty weather days where we have this this fantasy opinion that because it's so dreary and nasty, those big bucks are going to know that we aren't going to be out in this, so they're just going to get up and walk around. I think that's bullshit. I think that's fantasy land bullshit. If it's terrible conditions, the deer don't want to be out in it any more than you do. And I, I just, I, I, my experience tells me I've wasted many, many hours just roughing it out in really bad weather and not seeing anything, not a squirrel, not a bird, not a deer, not nothing. Inversely, as soon as it quits raining, I start seeing deer. And on the other hand, I've hunted right before a front and tried to tough it out and I was seeing deer and everything was going good. And as soon as it started raining, lights out, no deer. Hmm. So I, I've seen deer in the rain. I killed a deer on video in 2017 or 15. You can find it on my YouTube channel in an absolute downpour. But it was the middle of the rut, and the deer was after a duck. Mm -hmm. So I have to give that – I have to put that out there because I do not believe it was 35 degrees. It was a 10-mile-an-hour wind, and it was raining steady from it – was, it wasn't supposed to start raining until like 8 or 9 in the morning. So I was going to get in there and hunt. Well, it started raining at like 6, of course. And it rained, and I sat there until 8.30, and this doe was behind me, and this little buck come up out of a bottom messing with her, and this bigger deer come up out of the bottom trying to run that deer off and checking a scrape. And he wouldn't have done that if there hadn't been rut going on. So, yeah, I mean, I've killed deer in the rain. I've seen deer in the rain. There's steps to every rule. I believe the weather's a big deer, big deal, and I, and I, and I really and truly believe that in most situations – what is favorable to you as a hunter is more favorable to the deer than I think, I, I, you know, if you, I, it's, I guess you can't call it a wives tale because in the hunting world, it's not a wives tale, but I just, I know in my life, I've, I've heard lots and lots of old men around hunting camp talk about how them big bucks like to walk around on them nasty days. And I just don't believe that. I, I don't know where that came from or how that was derived, but I don't think that's the case. I think if you can get bluebird and a rising barometer, anything above 30, on the barometer um, is absolutely the kind of conditions you're looking for for optimal deer movement, whether it's just seeing a bunch of deer or whether it's actually seeing a big mature deer that you're after or something like that. So there's not a lot to say about the weather other than pay a lot of attention to it because it makes a big difference. And, and don't burn yourself up and burn up your spots. You know, if look, if it's, if it's like it was on Thursday and Friday, if it's 75 degrees with a southeast wind, just give it a break. Because whatever <laughs> deer's around there, you might see a yearling get up and walk across food plot or something in the afternoon. Unless you're taking a kid hunting or something like that, just spend some time with the family or with the wife or with your friends <laughs> or watch a football game or something. Because all you're doing is educating the shit out of everything around by forcing yourself to go sit in the deer stand when it's 75 degrees on November the 30th with a 10 mile an hour southeast wind. If if you're doing that then you that you're you're just you're just a glutton for punishment, I guess. Uh, you know, and then 
there's going to be that one guy that says he killed the biggest buck of his life in those conditions. And I, and I know it happens, but I, I, I it, it's a big deal. And yeah. it, it, it 100% dictates deer movement. And just, that's all I can say about it. Yeah. And you know, the other thing to add to that is, um, and this can tie into a couple of, couple of topics that we've talked about tonight is other people's success has absolutely no bearing on your future success. Okay. That's so true. I mean, absolutely zero, zero relationship to how successful or how much you're going to fail. Is that um, transitive property? Is that what we would call that? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it kind of falls into this this fantasy belief of like this thing called the genetic memory, in which, um, you know, there's there's people advocating um, reparations for the descendants of once slave families. Okay, you did not you did not endure, and you did not uh, go through the same things that your great 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 family members did, and so. Nobody else has any bearing on what you do or your future success or even your future failures. Only you do. And so the reason why I'm saying that is because we hear like we we always default to what you just said. Oh, there's this guy. He he says he killed the biggest deer of his life while he was smoking a cigarette or he he killed. Everybody always kills the biggest deer in their life. In the most unbelievable condition, okay. Like I, I was hanging upside down from my tree stand because mm-hmm. it's the way I like to hunt, and that's the only way I kill big deer. Turns out you have yep. to be hanging upside down to kill one nineties, right? And so, yeah. Um, what it is, it if y'all, if you, if <laughs> if you want, I like I like pointing people in directions of other ways to learn and other, um, uh, other other. F- forms of entertainment but um i've brought up a guy named malcolm gladwell uh in the past one of my favorite authors and he has a um, podcast called revisionist history and it's truly my favorite like brain food podcast on the planet because you end every episode smarter than you started it and um if you want to know why people do that, why they say these outlandish stories, why they tell you that this crazy thing happened and i accomplished this huge feat think about brian williams the news anchor that got fired for lying about being on the helicopter in, what was it, mm-hmm. Iraq? Okay. There's an yeah. episode of the Malcolm Gladwell Revisionist History podcast called Free Brian Williams. And it explains the human reason behind why we embellish and then ultimately believe our own lies. All right. And why we have to, why we feel the need to make our stories more interesting than they actually were because it makes other people think that we are more interesting as people. And that's exactly how Brian Jones, Brian Williams got in trouble with that. So when you hear people say like, Oh, I, you know, scent doesn't matter. I killed biggest deer of my life, you know, wearing uh, a gallon mm-hmm. of a kunk, skunk perfume. Like what you, yeah. wait, you, you smoke cigarettes on purpose in the deer stand to try and kill like you're like you so you're saying like not only do you think it doesn't hurt but now you're saying that you do it as a tactic it's like the guy saying i got drunk and jumped off the whatever bridge mm-hmm. and survive so now everybody should do that because it yeah. works for me well anyway <laughs> i mean you wouldn't do that well you know we're talking about weather but what i'm talking about is is we all know a guy that kills a bunch of big deer 
Okay, we all know a guy that kills deer consistently or kills deer in these crazy weather conditions or whatever. Okay, if, we, if we're really honest about the reason why that guy is so successful, is number one, he's gotten very good at identifying deer sign and locating where deer are. And number two, he probably has possibly exponentially more free time than you do. And so when you think about the amount of chances that you have to kill a quote-unquote big deer and compare it to the amount of chances, meaning hunts and time in the woods, that he has, he might be quadruple you. Which means, theoretically, due to the law of large numbers, he has a four time greater, 400% greater chance of killing any deer, much less a giant deer, than you do. And so the best way to... I guess you say take take uh, full advantage of your hunting opportunities is like you're saying hunt them on the right days. Well, that kind of negates the whole like well I can only hunt Saturday Sunday. We're, most of us are in that boat, by the way, unless you're like shift work or plant or you have something where you are off in the middle of the week. Uh, <clears throat> but realistically, that's that not trying to defend people because I do it too, but that's why people hunt on 75 south south 75 degree south wind days. It's because those are the days they're able to hunt. Um, and it's really difficult to convey to someone instead of making 20 hunts out of the year with five of them being really good, why don't you make five hunts on those best days and do something else with those other 15 days? Um, yeah. and, and, and have a higher rate of success. I think that's the point well, you're making, right? Yeah, I, I think it is, but I, I think it's just kind of easy to, 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 to sum that up by saying, identify your purpose, you yeah. know, because there's the guy that's going to say, well, you know, I just enjoy being able to go hunt. You know, when I get the opportunity, I'm going to. And for that, by all means, you know, you work hard, um, for whatever resources you accumulate, whether it be, you know, um, the time off or, or, or the land you've acquired or whatever. And, you know, if that's what it's about for you, then that's fine. But, you know, my, I just, I guess I'm trying to clarify my comments are pointed at the person who's asking for, they're not asking for more hours of peaceful time in the woods to themselves. They're asking for advice and opinions on how to kill more deer or bigger deer. If you, if that's what your goal is, is to be successful in terms of harvest and encounters and whatnot, then that, the, that, that's where these opinions are derived. If I know people and I've even been in that boat, in that, in that boat myself, where there are times when I just wanted to go out and enjoy the woods. I wanted to take my bow and go sit and stand. And I wouldn't really, I didn't really care. I mean, yeah, I'd gladly accept some good fortune, but I really just needed some time to myself and wanted to enjoy the woods. And there are people that look, I'm going to hunt on the weekends because I, I enjoy being out in the woods and I'm going to take whatever opportunities come my way. And, and I'm just, that's what it is for me. And if that's the case, then we're not saying that there's anything wrong with that. And I'm, I'm certainly not trying to say that there's anything wrong or negative about that approach. I'm just simply trying to offer um, my opinions based off my experience and what I've learned hunting um, to, to help the guy who's, trying to uh maximize their ability to harvest kill a deer specifically a a, a yeah. bigger target deer yep well to get back on on the topic of of weather from my my tangent that i said i would um i, I mean i honestly i don't have a lot to add to what you've already said um 
I have seen I have seen the greatest amount of deer activity, regardless of size and age and gender of deer during weather transitions. Um, I will admit that I this is like I said, sample size of one. I tend to see fewer deer, oftentimes zero deer in higher wind situations. Um, but then again, that doesn't mean that they aren't moving. That just means they aren't moving within 50 yards in every direction of me. You know, um, yeah. I have personally never killed a deer in a high wind situation. I have killed a deer in a, um, in a, and when I, and let me clarify what high wind is. I'm not talking about like 12 to 15. I'm talking like 15 to 25 miles an hour. All right. Um, in South Louisiana, 12 to 15 is just like called it's called Monday. <laughs> you know, it's every every other day is is 15 mile an hour winds. And so I don't really call that high wind. Um, but um, I, one of the reasons why I think maybe they don't move as much in the wind. And I noticed this on Sunday when I was hunting in high winds. Um, everything's moving. Everything, I mean, it sounds really yeah. obvious, but everything's swaying, everything's moving, vines are moving back and forth, palmettos are wrapping over themselves, making a bunch of noise back and forth. And so all of the ways, in my opinion, that a deer can um, detect threats are negated in that. And so yeah. I think they just say like, well, just like, you know, hunker down. Like, well, let's wait until this settles down and I can get my powers back, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk about whether I, I can't I do not have a single word to say about barometric pressure. I know less than nothing about it. So I would not even try it and talk about it. Um, I also know less than nothing about moon phases other than the fact that I think <laughs> deer activity apps are um, are for suckers. And there's zero correlation between specifically where you're hunting and what a thing on your phone says um and um other than high wind i agree you know just adding that in i agree with everything else that you've said i don't think that i don't need to like <laughs> double back uh, I, on I, what I think said. i think well the one i think the only thing to take away from that is just uh, I, I feel like weather is one of the easiest things to track in terms of we can say what we've experienced and we can say what is the accepted, you know, norms, um, for deer hunting and, and like the high pressure thing. But, you know, I mean, the weather's kind of static. I mean, it shouldn't be hard for you to, to, um, identify that you're seeing more deer on calm bluebird days than you are on cloudy, windy days, for example, and just pay attention to it. It's not a fluke. I mean, if you're, if, if, if every time you go hunting and it's really calm and there's bright bluebird and the pressure's high and the temperature's, you know, below a certain, if you're seeing deer very regular, then just learn from it. That's, I mean, it's just for, just accept the fact, I guess my whole point to begin with was as hunters, we we're not we are not me and you um we're not scientists so we don't know the reasons why but I, you know i will say unequivocally that the deer are 100 percent affected by the weather and you know it shouldn't be hard for you to identify those trends if you spend enough time whether you're you know hunt as often as you can or you hunt a whole lot it shouldn't be hard for you to identify that hey i'm just not seeing a lot of deer in these situations and i'm seeing a lot more deer in these situations, even if that's just on camera, I'm getting a lot more pictures on days, you know, I'm looking at the dates on my camera and the deer activity 
day and dark is higher under these kind of temperatures and these kind of situations. Just pay attention to it because it's not a fluke. It's not just a roll the dice. What am I going to do? The deer pay attention to the weather in some facet. It, it controls their life. They live in it. They don't have a house. They can't negate the weather with four walls and an air conditioning unit or a furnace or anything like that. So the weather has a huge factor. And, you know, all there is to say about it is just pay attention to it and, and learn the trends and follow the trends. It's just like with everything else. It's a percentage game, yeah. you know, and th- that's one of the easiest ways to play the odds because, you know, the, the weather is one of those things that has less variables. It either is hot or it is cold. It is windy or it is not. It is raining or it is not. It's cloudy or it's not. I mean, it's one way or the other, and those factors are pretty static, and it's one of the easiest ways to try to play odds. Yeah. One factor. So, well, that was two hours and seven minutes of answering yeah. six questions. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, of course, I think uh, neither of us have ever been accused of saying too little. Um, no. But, that's you know, that's why we're here, I guess. That's, that's why we're here. Yeah. Um, but, to everybody that submitted questions, like we couldn't get to everybody's. And um, like I said uh, at the beginning, the Piney Woods question, um, how do you hunt Piney Woods? And the answer is corn. Um, but yeah. I want to do <laughs> I want to do a full episode on that with somebody that is really proficient in that because I'm not. Um, and Locke has done it a lot in Mississippi, but I think having Locke and somebody that's very proficient in hunting that way in Louisiana, I think that would be some good information because there's a lot of people hunting wirehouse releases, hunting timber timber property. Um, there's a lot of people that have loggers come and just destroy their whole, I don't say destroy, but ruin everything that they've done um, for food plots and, and setting up stands and all that stuff for mm-hmm. the season. And so um, that's just something I've never experienced. And so I've, I'd like to learn about that also. Yeah. And uh, we should seek out a guest on that because I personally can't think of any off the top of my head. But um, anyway, uh, thanks for being on, man. And uh, yep. y'all have y'all have a good day. All right, guys. All thanks, right, everybody. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.